Hello, and thank you for joining us for the Hatchbend Apostolic Church web broadcast. In our society today, some, and yes, sadly, maybe even most, question the value of preaching in their lives. But we still believe what Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. In essence, Paul preached that God has chosen the foolishness of preaching to save them that believe. And so that's why we still place such a high value on the preached word of God in agreement to the scripture. And so now I'd like to thank you again for joining us for a message from our pastor at Hatchbend Apostolic Church. Praise the Lord. Aren't you thankful to know that's more than just a song? (laughs) Amen. It's a beautiful name, but it's a powerful name. It's an arresting name, and I'm thankful for that. What a refreshing presence of the Lord is in this house this evening. Amen. I'm thankful for the wonderful music and the singing and the praise and the worship they've been playing and singing like they don't have a problem in the world. Amen. Don't you wish you could trade your sorrows for theirs? Because it appears they have none. Amen. Thank you for not bringing your problems to the house of God and wearing them. Amen. But they've been leading us in worship, and I appreciate that. And you've been responding in your praise and worship as though you didn't have a care in the world. But we we know that the Lord is able to keep us and sustain us. Amen. I want to thank all of you who were in, in any part, any way a part of our fundraiser on Sunday afternoon after service for our young people. And thank you for your contributions and whatever that may have been, if that was dollars and cents or sweat equity, whatever you've given, we thank you for that. Our hugs will be at 7 to 9 this uh, coming Friday night in the Fellowship Hall. And then on June the 2nd, our She's for Christ kickoff rally in our newly formed Section 4, and that will be at Brother Williams Church in Ocala. Amen. I'm going to ask us to pray, and we're going to just begin a journey here this evening and ask the Lord to help us, and I believe that he will. Amen. Lord, I love you today, and I thank you for the privilege not to just preach your word, but I feel very honored and humbled, Lord, to be able to preach to this particular congregation. I thank you, Lord, for planting us here and merging our lives together, and I ask you this evening... As we warm our hands and our hearts and our lives around your word, help us, O God, that we will see more clearly the way and the path that you have set before all of us. And I pray your anointing upon your word this evening and that word to touch our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. And you may be seated. Amen. God speaks through the word of God, the Bible. What a tremendous privilege to own a Bible, amen. We can't relate to anything otherwise. As a matter of fact, we probably don't, if we consider electronic versions of the Bible, we probably don't even know how many Bibles that we own. Amen. And, uh, and so I'm thankful for the Bible, the word of God. It is a major tool of communication between God and man, ultimately, ultimately, the authority of all preaching and all teaching lies not in man itself, but in the word of God, in the Bible. 
and I'm thankful for the I'm thankful for the word of the Lord. It's a living seed. I was um, reading a scripture the other day that I I'm confident I've read many many times, and just something kind of jumped off the page at me, and and uh, I told my wife I said I, I'm sure you know how you get those little moments and they mean more to you than people around you, but she was the only one sitting there. And so I said, it's just amazing. Just listen to this verse. And I was reading that verse and and uh, I'm not saying she doesn't appreciate the word of the Lord, but she wasn't in the moment quite like I was. But it's amazing to me how many times you can stumble across or just kind of kick over a rock and discover a gem, a truth, the word of God. It can be in a familiar place and I'm thankful for that. Some of the greatest truths of scripture are certainly born out of diligent study of the word of God and, and, and much of what we know about preaching is somewhat topical in and of itself. Perhaps a, a preacher or minister feels that the Lord would lead them to a specific topic or something of that nature and, and, and pull a few verses and link them together. And, uh, and preach on the topic that the Lord has laid on their heart at that particular moment, and there's absolutely nothing wrong with that at all. I think the strength of that kind of preaching or, or even the strength of that kind of teaching lies in the fact that it addresses specific areas and it ministers to specific needs. I think that all of us, uh, of course, individually go through... Um, journeys in our life but I think collectively we also can go through journeys and so sometimes the Lord just will speak about specific things I I think I'm safe to say that at least most of us have felt to some degree that God has just at times moved everybody else out of the way and and just preached to us just kind of dropped something in our heart amen that's important I think those times are very important uh, given the seasons of our lives whatever that may be and so the Lord may direct someone to preach along those lines. But if I'm gonna use the word drawback here in, a, in probably the loosest form possible, but I suppose that one drawback to that would be the fact that rarely are the verses that surround the verse of that particular topical sermon or message, uh, are, are they ever revealed in their context? And I'm not saying that the verses would ever be taken out of context, but I'm just pointing out that that sometimes supporting verses are not always represented. And so that's why it's so important for us to read the word of God, the whole counsel of the word of God, not just to kind of spend our whole life just plucking out a scripture here or a scripture there. Um, I was visiting my Aunt Bobby a few days ago when I noticed that on her coffee table um, was a little thing, I, I, I think they were called bread. We refer to the, even that as today, the bread program, but I think just little daily scriptures. And and uh, she told me that that was actually her parents, my grandparents. And uh, I hadn't, hadn't seen one exactly like that in many, many years. But And it's neat to be able to just go by and pluck one scripture, but you can't just live off one scripture at a time is my point. That that as you study the word of God, we begin to learn more about God. And that's what we really know. And we need to know that the truth of God's word is built from the whole Bible and not just a verse here and a verse there. Because every scripture works together 
to present the whole gospel. And we need the whole counsel of the Lord. And so uh, the Bible contains single unified message that I think is broadcast from the very beginning to its end. With all of its many books and with all of its varied writers, there is one central theme. And, and it's, it, that is why the beauty of diligent study of the word of God is so important. Because as you pull back layers of the word of God, you find more layers of the word of God. Amen, and we just pull back one dimension of the Lord only to discover another dimension of the Lord. We're not exhausting him as we study him. We're not, uh, we're not depleting his strength as we begin to journey uh, through his word, but we're actually discovering more and more of the strength of the word of God. Isaiah uh, put it this way in Isaiah 28 and 10. He said, for precept must be upon precept, precept upon precept, line upon line, line upon line, here a little, there a little. And so precept must be upon precept, line upon line. And the scripture begins to reveal through this precept upon precept, line upon line, the scripture begins to reveal one thing, and that is God. Amen. This is not a novel. The word of God is not entertainment. Amen. There is a common core. There is a common thread. I want to reveal myself to man. Amen. I want to show myself. I want to give of myself. And so from creation to redemption, from the foundation all the way to the end, every passage of scripture introduces us to God, to faith, to salvation. It, it, it introduces to us and then establishes for us uh, precepts of godly living. The word of the Lord doesn't just tell us how to get saved, but it teaches us how to stay saved. And so for this reason, I think there is nothing more satisfying than an in-depth look at a particular passage of scripture or as in our case this evening, a particular book in the Bible. So for the next few weeks, I'm going to uh, just work our way through the book of James. Uh, many, many years ago now, I don't even remember how many years ago, I taught a series from the book of James. And um, I will say for my own personal, my own Self, it was one of the most enjoyable seasons of study for me. Please don't take that out of context. I just enjoyed studying about the life and the book of James. And so I want to begin this journey and I want to just say in the outset that I, I'm not going to teach on the book of James every single services, every service, but I think that uh, obviously there will be other times maybe the Lord deals with me differently or somebody is, else is speaking or whatever the case may be, but I, I, want, I want us to take a close look at the book of James. And so as, with that for an introduction, I would just like to give you a homework assignment, if that's all right, if you're still as crazy about homework today as you used to be. This ought to be, this ought to be a thrill. But I want, to, I want you to encourage, I want to encourage you, if you will, to just allow the book of James to be a part of your daily Bible reading. And uh, just, just include a chapter or so of that. And uh, the entire book only contains 108 verses, so it's not a, big, not a big challenge there. And so that would give us an opportunity to read it through several times. And so if you'll read it for yourself, 
I believe that it will help our study as we go along. And I realize there's a lot of life that goes under the bridge between services and it's kind of hard to stay connected. But let's do the best that we can. And so I want this evening to simply give you an introduction to the book and cover the first verse. And, and um, I told a friend of mine today, I don't want to scare you to death by taking the whole service tonight and just preaching about one verses and then one verse and then you think, wow, there's 107 left. <laughs> this is going to be an endurance test, a marathon. Don't please don't disconnect that soon. Amen. Wait a few services, but uh, Amen. The first verse of the letter introduces us to the author, and this is what James one and one says: James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes which are scattered abroad, greeting. James, I think it's very very important to understand this first portion of scripture, James is a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now that's a simple introduction, but it's pretty interesting. There's four prominent men named James in the New Testament. The vast majority of scholars agree that, that the author of this particular letter is the James that was the half-brother of Jesus. Joseph and Mary, according to scripture, had other children after the birth of Jesus Christ. In Matthew 13 and 55, also in Mark 6 and 3, lists the half-brothers of Jesus as being James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas. In Galatians, in Galatians chapter 1 and verse number 19, Paul explicitly calls James the Lord's brother. And so there is a connection here. The interesting thing about all of this is that Although they grew up with Jesus and observed him firsthand, Jesus' brothers, his own brothers, did not at first believe him themselves. John records their unbelief in John 7. Perhaps this is what led to the declaration when Jesus said, perhaps in, ex in exasperation, a prophet is not without honor except among his own relatives or his own house. His own did not even believe him. During the life and the ministry of the Lord, James and all of his other half-brothers could easily be listed as skeptics. It's likely that his half-brothers were among the friends who were mentioned in Mark 3 and 21. The Bible says, when his friends heard of it, they went out to lay hold on him, for they said, he is beside himself. Maybe his Brothers thought, we need to save him from himself. He is beside himself. That's a, that's a much nicer way of saying, I believe he's lost his mind. However, a remarkable thing occurred in, in between the death of Jesus and the day of Pentecost. By the time those that believed in Jesus gathered in Jerusalem after his resurrection, James and the other half-brothers had experienced a change of heart. In Acts chapter one and verse 13, the scripture tells us that the, that the disciples were gathered in the upper room. And then in verse number 14, the Bible says, these all continue with one accord in prayer and supplication with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, with his brethren. His skeptical brothers experienced a conversion and were among the group that were filled with the Holy Ghost on the day of Pentecost in the upper room. What a tremendous thing. 
Paul gives some insight into what may have prompted this conversion in 1 Corinthians 15 and 7. I'm going to begin reading it, the, the fourth verse of chapter 15, but in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 4, the Bible says, and that he was buried and that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures and that he was seen of Cephas then of the twelve. After that, he was seen of above 500 brethren at once of whom the greater part remain unto this present, but some are fallen asleep. After that, he was seen of James then of all the apostles. Apparently, from Scripture, Jesus made a post-resurrection visit to James, his half-brother. No doubt, after watching his, his brother crucified and then seeing after he was risen was enough to stir him to belief. I think that would help me believe. If I saw him crucified and now he paid me a personal visit, I think I would be convinced that he was who he said he was. It was enough to cause him to be present in the upper room. It was enough to cause him to be wanted, to be counted among those that were there. It was enough to make him a candidate to be filled with the baptism of the Holy Ghost. And so the church was born in this upper room. And James, although he was not a disciple, became a key leader in the Jerusalem church. Galatians 2 and 9 tells us that when, when Paul visited Jerusalem, he discovered that James as well as Simon Peter and John were pillars of the church there. Because the apostles were frequently away preaching the gospel, they were missionaries, if you please. James eventually became the leader of the Jerusalem church. In Acts 12 and 17, Peter, following his miraculous release from the jail, you may remember that story, where he goes and knocks on the door, a young lady named Rhoda goes to the door and he ordered the believers that had been praying for him. He said, he said in Acts 12 and 17, go show these things unto James and to the brethren. So apparently James, the author of the book into consideration tonight, was a man with whom held such a position that news of this nature was due to go into him. And so I don't think that we're talking about a run-of-the-mill man here. That's my, that's my point. However, in verse number one, after we read and, and kind of flesh out all of these identifying marks of the man whose book we are discovering this evening, or discussing this evening, after all of these identifiers that place him in such lofty and notable positions, in verse number one, where James introduces himself, it's clear, amen, that he is an humble man because he does not identify himself as the half-brother of Jesus. He does not identify himself as the leader of the Jerusalem church. <laughs> but he identifies himself as this. My name is James, a servant of God, and of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. He's not a man full of himself, apparently a man quite unassuming. We're gonna come back to verse number one in just a minute, but let's just consider a few details about the book of James, and we may mention some of this as we go along. But the, the book of James was written somewhere around 50 AD, 40 to 50 AD. It was written 
between the events of Acts chapter 12 and Acts chapter 15. This makes the book of James, and if you look at it chronologically, this makes the book of James the very first New Testament book to be written. So what we have when we open the book of James, I hope I whet your appetite tonight. What we have when we open the book of James is the earliest piece of apostolic literature that is available to us. Amen. This is hot off the press as we can get from the day of Pentecost. The first piece of New Testament history to be recorded. We find in this hot off the press, so to speak, literature, a simple principle, and that is we find practical instructions on what it means to live a godly life after we have received the baptism of the Holy Ghost. It's one thing to receive the Holy Ghost and to be baptized in his name, but we need to know how to live now how to conduct ourselves. The book of James is a very practical book, a very practical book. The book of James has often been referred to as historians as the New Testament book of Proverbs because there's just some straightforward instructions there. James sort of kind of cuts right to the meat of the matter, doesn't leave a lot to have to be looked up or try to figure out a lot of things because his his statements were so practical and to the point, and, and, and even blunt, if I may say, about living for the Lord. There are 50 commands that are contained within the 108 verses that I mentioned earlier that comprise the book of James. These commands are imperative statement for the most part. They are imperative statements as to how we should live for the Lord. For instance, in, in James 1 and 22, James says, he just says this, be doers of the word and not hearers only. Well, you don't have to go look that up. You don't have to scratch your head and say, I wonder what he was hinting at there. <laughs> he just kind of lays it on the line and says, you need to be doers of the word, not just hearers only, but you gotta get up and do something about that. The book of James continues, I think, uh, contains an abundance of such scriptures that just help us head off questions and, and debate. James is interested in action not just talking about it. But what are we gonna do about this? And, and, and James seems to confront its re, his readers with an uncomfortable truth, and that is this, that, that if you're going to profess faith in Jesus Christ, then that is going to solicit some action on your part. You can't just say this with your lips, but at some point you have to engage your life into what you're saying. And so James is this writer that's just kind of up right in where we live. He just kind of gets all up in your business, if I can say it that way. He bluntly states in James 2 and 20, faith without works is dead. <laughs> Amen, that's not for the tender. Because he just kind of gets right down where the rubber meets the road. The book of James seeks to move its readers into action and not just passive living, not just a distant study, casual observance, but we've got to do something about what we know. Amen, I, I mentioned this Sunday morning, I preached on this Sunday morning about what, we, what will we do with truth. Truth, you've got to do something with truth. You can't just 
sidle up to truth and then say, well, I'm just gonna back away and assume that everything is gonna bid well or be well in our lives. It's not so. Amen. We've got to do something about this. James is admonishing such. So setting forth the premise that genuine faith will result in genuine action. That was that just seemed to be the motivation of James. So we find ourselves back here at James 1 and 1. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. The first verse of James is composed of three parts. Amen. There is first the identity of the author. The second is the identity of the audience to the 12 tribes which are scattered abroad. And the third topic is a greeting. I want to focus tonight, I want to focus on the very first portion of that, but I will mention all three. The greeting, of course, implies that he believed that the letter would be to a congregation of people and this letter would encourage them in their walk with God. The audience of this letter, and this can't be lost to us, please. The audience of this letter is the 12 tribes which are scattered abroad. The 12 tribes refer to the nation of Israel. And so it's clear from the letter that James' primary audience are Jewish Christians. Now please stay with me here. This is a very, very important detail. In light of the fact that this is the earliest book that was written after the day of Pentecost, and that the church, now in its earliest stages, is almost completely Jewish. James is not excluding the Gentile believers. He's simply writing to the church as it existed when the book was written. Is that fair enough? Amen. It's kind of like preaching something in 1940 and listening to it in 2017. And sometimes that is kind of preached in the context of the setting of the day. And so James is preaching to a church that is primarily made up of Jewish believers. Amen. That's a pra- and that practical commentary, I think, is applicable to all of us, whether Jew or Gentile. But, but for the sake of our study and for the sake of, uh, of my thought this evening, I think the real gem that is found here in verse number one is found in this first phrase. In spite of his prominence, as I mentioned a moment ago, he doesn't describe himself as Mary's son. He doesn't give himself any accolades, no attachments to who he really may be at all. He doesn't declare himself to be the bishop of the church in Jerusalem. He just appeals to them as to who he really is in his heart. From the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaketh. My name is James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. I I said recently that God is drawn to hunger and that God is drawn to humility. James, I believe, was an humble servant who was mightily used of the Lord. Now the word servant, when, when James use, uses this word servant of God, the word, the word servant is translated from the Greek which means a slave. This particular word describes a person that is deprived of all personal freedom and totally under control, under the control of his master. And so it's very, very important that we catch that word servant 
in the sense of servitude, in the sense that he was totally under the control of his master to serve anyone other than God would be idolatry. The common interpretation of the law that as Jews they were servants of God and only God. Stay with me now. And so to confess to be the servant of anyone or anything else would be to be found guilty of idolatry because their firm belief is that you cannot serve anything but God. Amen. This fierce determination and independence, if you please, is demonstrated in the book of John chapter eight in verses 32 and verse 33. It's here where where Jesus was declaring to this Jewish audience, he said to them, and you shall know the truth and the truth shall make you free. Now in in John 8, 32 and 33, if we keep this in context, pardon the sidebar here for just a moment, this was a time that the entire nation of Israel was under the dominion of the Roman Empire. They were held hostage or captive, if you please. Amen. And so he said, you shall know the truth and the truth shall make you free. Well, they were indignant by that statement, even though they were captive or, or, or under the dominion, I may should say, of the Roman Empire. And so in the very next verse, they answered and said, in John 8 and 33, they answered him, we be Abraham's seed and were never in bondage to any man. How sayest thou, ye shall be made free? You can't be made free if you've never been in bondage. So they were denying the fact that they were in bondage. Amen. Even when the Romans had clearly conquered them and had control of them, they were repulsed by the implication that they were going to be subject to anybody but God. So they may have been in Roman dominion, so to speak, but in their mind, they were not in captivity. They were free. Now, I'm coming in for a landing, so just hang on. Stay connected with me, if you will, for just a few more minutes. I want to go back to our text one more time. James, a servant of God and of Jesus Christ. It is so important that James confess not only to be a servant of God, but also to be a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ because this was an incredible statement of the deity of Christ. (laughs) To the Jewish mind, if Jesus were in any way, form or fashion, less than God, what James has just uttered here would be a statement of blasphemy, that I am serving God and someone else. Amen. It was not even acceptable in the, in the Jewish custom for them to breathe the name of God in the same breath or the same sentence with the name of another man or much less to profess to serve both of them. They could not even utter the name of God in the same sentence, so to speak, with anyone else. 
And so remember, this letter is addressed to Jewish Christians. These are the same Jews that refuse to call themselves slave to anyone or anything but God. The only way that James could have been the servant of both God and Jesus Christ is if they were both one in the same. <laughs> Praise God. Amen. In this single introductory sentence, James clears his throat and expresses the deity of God. Amen. In his own submission to the Lord, a man who himself was once clearly identified as a skeptic, but now he is a believer and a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. Simply put to James, Jesus is God. Amen. And James is a slave to that God. And that slave was born in an upper room. And so the main message this evening of the first verse of the first chapter of the book of James is the mighty God in Christ. They are one and the same. It is also a confession that every true follower of the Lord must surrender themselves and they must surrender their way completely, wholly, unequivocally to God. Amen. This is what the new birth experience is all about. You know, I, I don't want you to think that I'm being unkind or cynical in any fashion. I promise before the Lord that I am not. But sometimes people think that Pentecost is just an emotional experience. And that our speaking with other tongues or uh, that other manifestations of outward worship and demonstration is all, it's all perhaps in the minds of some just mere antics. But can I tell you today that that new birth is not about clapping our hands or leaping for joy or uh, it's not about our praise or our worship, but a, a new birth experience is all about surrender and submission, not of our will, but our will to the will of God. I am a servant of God. God, I am a servant of God. Now James clearly had other titles and he had other positions in life. He had clefts upon which he firmly stood and could have boasted of. But at the heart of the matter, he was not the bishop of the New Testament church. He was not Mary's son or Jesus' half-brother. He wasn't this or that. He was simply put a servant of the God, of God a servant of God. And so when we realize that we are not our own, that's what the scripture says, that kind of flies in the face of some of us sometimes. We're not our own, we're bought with a price. Spendable change in the hand of God. When we look at scripture and stories in scripture in their practical form, we see no sense. It made no sense to us, if we were to read it just verse by verse, if we were just to read the story as it unfolds to us in scripture, it makes no sense when you see a man by the name of Stephen taken out of the scene at the zenith of his ministry. It makes no sense. Why would you allow such a thing to happen? Why would you allow a man to die such a brutal death and I'm not trying to be crude or unkind, but we're spendable change in the hand of God. I'm going to cash in 
Stephen. But for the price of Stephen, I'm going to purchase Saul. Amen. Amen. Bought with a price. And so tonight, I'm going to ask us to stand. And I want to encourage everyone in this building to renew. Please don't write me off because what I'm fixing to say is going to sound so cliche that it could just kind of skip across our heart like a rock on water. But I'm going to ask everyone in this building tonight to renew our commitment to the Lord. Too often, we totally surrender at an altar of prayer and we receive the baptism of the Holy Ghost. And then life just starts coming at us a day at a time. A day at a time. And we start drifting. Now, drifting is a, drifting is a strange thing. I've been in a boat fishing with my, my friend right here. And you start drifting. You're kind of talking and not paying attention. The next news you know, you're not even where you were. No storm, no thunder, no dark clouds, nothing that would arrest your attention. You were just drifting. And I'm preaching tonight to, to people without exception who have the tendency to drift, including the man holding this mic. You just get busy living life and we drift away from that initial commitment. But James says, I want to clear this up right out of the gate. I am a servant of God. I am a servant of God. So I wonder tonight before we leave this house, if we could, whatever your titles are, whatever someone may call you in the morning and it doesn't matter who or how many would be subject to you. I wonder if we can set all those tiles down. It doesn't matter. It's not going to weigh an ounce when we stand before the Lord. Not going to weigh an ounce when we stand before the Lord. And what we really need to do is stop drifting and get control back in our life. And say, Lord, help me to together myself. I'm a servant. I, I was called to be a servant. We get lukewarm in our faith, and, and, and our faith is not what it ought to be. And if we're not careful, we'll just lose out altogether. It can happen so slowly. I've, I've said it so many times through the years, I've not even tried to keep count, but to me, one of the most horrifying passages of Scripture is Judges 16 and 20. If you've been around very long, you've heard me say this. Judges 16 and 20, and the Bible says here that, that Samson wist not or knew not that God had departed from his life. It's just such a gradual thing, just hint, just playing, just, just kind of goofing around. Here's my power. Oh, I was just teasing about that. And we have something as precious as his gift in our heart and we get wayward with it and forget that we're really a servant. And so I wonder tonight, right maybe where we stand, if we could just 
really pray, not, not pray a little prayer that kind of would get us out of this service and out of this moment, but I wonder if we could really pray. How long has it been? How long has it been since the Spirit of the Lord just kind of gripped our heart and squeezed? Amen. I want to surrender my life and my will to the Lord. Amen. Let's let our voices be heard, our faith be felt tonight. In Jesus' name, God, I love you with all of my heart. And I thank you for the power of the Holy Ghost. I thank you, Lord, for such a clear path that that you have set before all of us here tonight, God. I thank you for the power of your spirit that has deliverance and healing in its wings. I thank you tonight, God, for the grace and the wonder of your presence that touched us. If you could somehow tonight help us to draw and be drawn back to that place where we first met you and knew you and I pray, oh God, that the power and the presence of the Holy Ghost would just be renewed in all of our minds, in our hearts, and help us to never just settle for churches as usual, that we would not just settle, God, for living for you and let allow that to just be the norm in our lives and be complacent and and, and be lackadaisical in our spirit, in our approach and in our faith. But I pray, oh God, tonight, that your presence and your authority would arrest us. Let your spirit break us, if you will, tonight, God. And if you please, that we can understand that without you, we have nothing. Without you, we are nothing. We are mere servants. Whatever titles we may own in this world, whatever things we may feel that we have today, they're just, they're just dust and they will rot and they will rust with time. But the most valuable thing is my relationship with you. And I pray, O oh Lord, in the name of Jesus, that your presence and your authority God, let it be an arresting agent tonight and stir my heart, stir all of us together and help us, oh God, to be renewed and to be revived in you, to be strengthened by the power and by the presence of the Holy Ghost. In Jesus' name, in Jesus' name, amen, in Jesus' name, amen. There's there's an old, old, old song that says, don't let me walk too far from Calvary. Don't let me walk too far from Calvary. But oh God, somehow pull me back. I heard this years ago. I'm going to confess that I have never studied this out or found this to be factual. And I'm not given to repeating things that I have not fleshed out. But I did trust the source who said this, that in an eagle's eye, if I remember right, there are pectins, if that is the phrase I remember and that as an eagle, and those pectins are somewhat by birth set to the, uh, to the particular place where they're born. And as they fly away at times during the day, when they drift too far away, there are things in their eyes that pull them back home certain pains that turn them and help them to realize you've gone far enough. You've gone far enough. And you didn't turn and come back. And, and so, uh, factual or non-factual, I say tonight, let us take the principle of that and just say, Lord, create in my heart some things 
that if I've gone too far that way, let's let something ache in my heart to get back where I have been with you. I was talking to a a minister friend of mine yesterday and there are just some exciting things that are going on in his life and ministry and he was sharing those with me and 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 his jubilation just could not be it just could not be contained. He said, Brother Boyd, I feel like a new convert. <laughs> it was refreshing. I feel like a new convert. Amen. Lord, bathe us with that new convert feeling again. Can I tell you, if it feels awkward to pray, pray harder. If it feels awkward to worship, amen, worship harder. That's the only way you're going to ever press your way back in. Amen, you're going to have to press your way. This message has been brought to you today by the media ministry of Hatchbend Apostolic Church. We pray that it's ministered to you in some way, and we'd like to take this opportunity to invite you to join us in service here at Hatchbend Apostolic. Our Sunday services begin at 10 a.m. and our Wednesday night service at 7.30 p.m. For any more information or to speak with our ministry staff, please feel free to call our church office at 386-935-2806 or you can visit the contact link here on our website. Again, thank you for listening and we pray God's richest blessings on you and your family.